CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Do you want to figure out why you're not walking the talk? In this episode, we uncover the truth about what really holds people back and share the secret strategy that nearly all successful people use to achieve incredible things. We examine the world's most successful people and figure out exactly what commonalities they share and how you can apply them to your own life. All of this and much more in our interview with returning guest, Alex Benayan. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared how a college dropout went from waiting tables to becoming the owner of a major league soccer team and the most powerful venture capitalist in the healthcare industry. We uncovered the incredible strategy that can be used to break into any industry and become a dominant player, sharing the stage with top CEOs, even without any connections or relationships. We shared why you don't have to be an expert to leverage the credibility of others, talked about the power of public speaking and what it means to orchestrate a deal, and much more with our previous guest, Marcus Whitney. If you want an inside scoop at what it really takes to achieve success, listen to our previous episode. Now, for our interview with Alex. Today, we have another exciting guest returning back to the show, Alex Benayan. 
Alex is the best-selling author of The Third Door, which chronicled his five-year quest to track down the world's most successful people and uncover how they broke through and launched their careers. He's been named to Forbes 30 Under 30, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30, and he's been featured in major media outlets across the globe from Fortune to Forbes, Bloomberg, CNBC, MSNBC, and much more. Alex, welcome back to The Science of Success. Thank you so much. It feels good to be back. Well, I'm excited to have you back on the show. Your journey and your story from Third Door was so hilarious, made you laugh, it made you cry. And we got into a lot of the details around that in the first interview and some of these ridiculous stories. For anybody who's excited by this conversation and wants to go back and you haven't listened to the first interview with Alex, I recommend doing that. But Alex, for people who are just tuning in and and haven't caught the first one, give us a, a short summary of this epic journey, which I know is quite challenging to do. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's, it's very kind of you to say. And you know, if I had to really you know, bring it down to a short version, you know, on the on the surface, this is a you know wild seven year journey to track down the world's most successful people and figure out how they broke through and launched their careers. This is you know my journey of researching and interviewing people to find you know what is that definitive mindset for success, and then the subtext of this narrative. You know, you read the book is that. It's also this, you know, coming of age story and the search for belonging and the search for understanding what the meaning of life is. And, you know, the book covers, you know, all industries for business. I spoke to Bill Gates, music, Lady Gaga, science, Jane Goodall, poetry, Maya Angelou, Quincy Jones, Jessica Alba, Larry King, Steve Wozniak, Tim Ferriss. That's been this, you know, unbelievable journey filled with surprising lessons at every turn. And when I had started this journey, you know, there was no part of me looking for that quote unquote one key to success. You know, we've all seen those business books or those TED Talks, and normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening over this seven year journey is that I realized that every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub, there's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block. And that's where, you know, 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. That's where you're standing out in the cold, holding your resume, hoping the bouncer lets you in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. But what I've learned is that there's always always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Steven Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history. They all took the third door. And that's not only you know the title and the thesis of the book, that's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. It's such a powerful message. And... Again, we won't get into the details, but the stories from this journey were absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing of a, of a college kid trying to track down Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Lady Gaga and all of these world-changing icons. Yes. If you're, yes, if you're looking for a book with bullet points on success, it's not this. This is much more 
wild adventure stories with lessons throughout. Yeah, you know, there's the story of chasing Larry King through the grocery store, hacking Warren Buffett's shareholders meeting for 30,000 people, spending, you know, four days with Lady Gaga in Austin, Texas, hacking the prices right. So there's definitely a lot of preposterous adventures in there. And they're laugh out loud funny and, and heartwarming and, and sad and make you laugh and cry. But the thing that really piqued my interest beyond the like great narrative was this shared quest that I think we both have, which is trying to understand what makes people succeed. But even more specifically than that, because there's a lot of things about that, one of the things that maybe one of the biggest things that I've been interested in my entire life is understanding that inflection point or trying to figure out not what Bill Gates did when he was 50 and he was already a, a titan right. of industry because right. so many biographies focus on all of that stuff. I want to know yes. what did yes. they do to become successful, not what did they do once they were already successful? That is the exact reason why I wrote this book. It's because I was searching for a book that focused on just that. And you know, eventually I was left empty-handed. And exactly what you just said is the heart of the beginning of this journey. And that's why I, I love what you're working on because it's something that to me, there's no books about it. Nobody talks about it. And you're lucky in, in a biography of an eminent achiever if you get 20 pages on the, oh my God, the, the critical time in their life. That is 20 pages. It's normally like two to 10 pages. Yeah. On that it part. might be like a paragraph sometimes. Because this is the thing. When you're... Bill Gates or Spielberg or Buffett, people want to hear about all the sexy stuff. You know, when you, when Bill Gates did the first, you know, Windows launch, you know, no one wants to hear about, well, a biographer probably doesn't think that people want to hear about, you know, him making cold calls and getting hung up on. But that to me is the most interesting part. I totally agree because I'm obsessed with the question of how can I or anybody apply these lessons and take take some morsel that's actually applicable to my life. And if I'm not the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, a lot of these later game strategies don't necessarily work, but there have to be nuggets. And you said something earlier that really resonated with me that I think so many people miss is that there's a commonality to the perspective that a lot of these achievers have. But even more important than that is that there's always and you repeated yourself and said always twice, always a way in. That is, if I had to summarize the entire energy of the third door in one sentence, it would be, there's always a way. So many people miss that and get stuck thinking that there's some kind of barrier, there's something holding them back. And, and in the pre-show, you made a great comment talking about how you've been touring all around the globe, doing book tours and, and launching the book. And yet the question, the number one question that you get from people in the audience is often nothing to do with the breakthroughs in, in these achievers' careers, but it was something else entirely. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, this is, it's been a really exciting year because, you know, last year the real focus was on the U.S., you know, book tour. And this year I was very lucky to be able to go on this international tour. So we did, you know, book launches in China and Japan and Korea and Bulgaria and Italy and Spain, 
in Canada, it's been, you know, this really remarkable journey and what I've been surprised by. And this actually is true again, even on the US book tour last year too, which is you would think, or I would think, you know, I wrote this book that, you know, really talks about, you know, the world's most successful people and the people coming to these book signings would want to ask questions, you know, how did Bill Gates do this? How did Spielberg do that? And what I've been shocked by is that 90% of the questions I've been getting, you know, in countries all around the world have a much different focus. The focus of 90% of the questions I hear have much more to do with people's fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of being abandoned by the people they love if they go out and achieve their dream, if they go out to pursue their dream. There are so many psychological factors that imprison people, whether they're aware of it or not, that are the biggest reasons people don't go after to achieve their dream. It's almost like this hidden underbelly of success. You know, when we normally talk about success or achieving a dream, you talk about the external factors. Well, how do you start the company? How do you raise capital? How do you manage? How do you operationalize? You know, all these external factors. But what I've learned, not only through my research of writing this book, but also just seeing the reader's responses, is that it's the internal factors. You know, the reasons, the internal reasons people don't achieve a dream that not only are the most critical to the journey, but also are the most pressing on people's minds right now. And I've noticed the same thing in many ways. That's, again, our journeys and visions are so yeah. similar because I've, the whole project of the science of success is all about trying to help people overcome and even recognize those internal barriers. Tell me a little bit more about that phenomenon and how you've learned to deal with it and what you've seen from studying the Warren Buffetts and the, the Lady Gagas of the world and how they think about it. Yeah. So I've been lucky when it comes to, and I'm sure you've, I would imagine you've had a similar vantage point when it comes to studying success. You know, I've been doing it for about nine years now, you know, very intentionally focusing on, you know, cracking this puzzle. I, you know, have sort of had three different groups that I am able to, you know, study success through a prism. You know, one is, and the most obvious one is the world's most successful people. So, you know, interviewing Bill Gates and, you know, studying Buffett, you know, that's being one group. The second group that's been more recent the past, you know, year or so is seeing the responses of readers who have read the book, meeting people at speaking engagements, and they think they're asking me questions, but I'm actually studying their questions as data for my, you know, larger, you know, curiosity. So that's another group. And a third vantage point that I have is my own personal journey. You know, I started this process when I was an 18-year-old unknown college freshman from my dorm room. And it wasn't intentional, but it was almost this meta experience of I'm studying success of how people launch their careers at the same time, trying to launch my own career and going through the process myself. And if I've learned one thing that unites all three of these vantage points, it's that the reason most people do not achieve their dream, you know, the biggest reason most people don't even attempt their dream has nothing to do with how hard it is 
to execute on that dream. You know, if we go back to the third door analogy, the reason most people don't achieve their dream is not because how hard it is to run down the alley, bang on the door, crack open a window. That's not the reason most people don't achieve a dream. The reason most people don't is because of their fear of leaving the line for the first door. If you think about it, that line for the first door is probably where you were born, where all your family is, where your family expects you to be, where your friends are, where, you know, that line for the first door is on the sidewalk where it's clean and well lit. You know, there's a bouncer there that sort of keeps things safe. And probably that's where you've been sustained your whole life too. It doesn't matter if you're happy or not happy. If you're lucky enough to have food on your table, it's probably because of where your current situation is. So there are dozens, if not hundreds of factors compelling you to stay in that line. And I think people grossly overestimate how hard it is to run down that alley and find the third door. Look, it's hard. I'm not, I am the last person to tell you that it's easy, but it is possible. But the reason most people don't do it is because of their fear of leaving the line for the first door. Such a great point. Even this idea that people grossly overestimate the difficulty of the actual execution piece, not to say that it's yeah. easy. Look, it's hard. Yeah, it is <laughs> really like you'll be feeling at times like you're bleeding from your eyeballs level hard, but it's still easier than most people think. And uh, yet, what if it's easier, I would say more doable. I think that's a great rephrase. It's not it, easier. It's more, it's more possible. And yet everyone's focus is on the execution, the action, and they they don't focus safe, on it. It's a safer excuse. Yep, exactly. It's a safer excuse. And I'm not going to knock anyone for doing this because, look, even let's forget about you know achieving a giant dream. Let's even talk about, let's say you want to be healthier. You know, let's pull something out of my closet of shame. You know, <laughs> being healthier. You know, working out more. I am a you know great case study in thinking how hard and how much lifestyle changes I'd have to make to really dial in my health and work out every day and eat perfectly. No, no, I know what to do. There's, you know, I've read the books. I, I know exactly what to do. I've done it before in the past. I know what to do. I know how to do it. The truth is, yeah, I have that fear of discomfort, that fear of changing my habits, the fear, you know, it's just easier to talk about how monumental of a task it is than it is to admit all the reasons you subconsciously don't want to do it. Fitness is such a great example only for the fact that it's so simple. Right. You know, it's not rocket science on how to lose weight, literally. You know, the science is there. Again, you know, there are exceptions. Some people have, you know, thyroid or stuff like, but for the most part, for the average person, you know, it's the food you eat and your level of activity. But most people don't do it. It's absolutely right. You know, I'll raise my hand there too sometimes. Oh, for sure. It's just such a great prism to understand that problem because it's so simple. In business or success in, in any more complex endeavor. Right. There's more external factors. There's so many things. There's so many different factors. Timing and luck and opportunity and resources. Right. Fitness is a much more... Oh, and you want to take it a level deeper. What I've been learning recently is that when it comes to success or when it comes to any journey that you take in life, whether it be a relationship journey, a personal development journey, 
familial journey. There is the conscious, and I was learning this in a storytelling workshop I went to. There is the conscious object of desire, right? You know, let's boil it down to fitness, or we can even, you know, use the third door of it as an example. In the third door, my conscious object of desire is I want to learn how to succeed. You know, the conscious object of desire is if you pull aside, you know, the main character of this story, you know, the third door, it's me, but in everyone's life, it's themselves. Everyone is the main character of their own personal life, right? If you pull that main character aside and you ask the main character, what do you want the most? The conscious object of desire is the answer that comes out of their mouth. However, every good story, and I've learned this very recently, every good story also has a subconscious object of desire, which only reveals itself through the actions of the protagonist. So if you ask someone, what is your object of desire? And they say, I want to, you know, again, hypothetically, I want to be healthier Then you know, the camera cuts to two o'clock in the morning and they're eating, you know, hamburger and fries. All of a sudden, you know, the viewer of that movie of your life knows that something isn't aligned. And trying to figure out what your subconscious object desires in real time is extremely hard and why most people don't do it. And only through action can you start to reveal what it is. Correct. And that's why therapy and journaling is so useful because you're reflecting on your actions and your decisions, not on your, you know, this storytelling workshop I went to the, you know, the professor instructor said something really interesting. He said the, the conscious mind is simply PR for the subconscious mind, <laughs> which I guess is, you know, that's a very Freudian thing to say, which is you have subconscious desires that your conscious mind rationalizes and makes excuses for. And, you know, I can, I'll use myself as an example. You know, there are times where I eat in a disordered manner that, you know, probably isn't the most beneficial for my health at times. And, you know, I even feel shame even just talking about it right now, but, you know, it's my reality. And my sister actually said something really interesting. She, she asked me, she said, what does the food say to you when you're eating it? You know, never thought of it in those terms, but I instantly knew the answer. It says, I'm here for you. And, you know, that's helped me realize that in times of stress, and again, it's not every day, but, you know, there are times in times of stress where my subconscious object of desire is comfort and acceptance. It's not being healthy. Being healthy is my conscious object of desire. But what I really want is that comfort and acceptance. And food, since my childhood, has been something that's been a reliable source of that. So welcome to the Alex Spinayan Shame Program, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> You're here now. We'll take the first one. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. I, I, we don't have to keep going down the, ro- the food <laughs> rabbit hole, but the question of what does it say to you when you're eating it, that's really interesting. I have to think about that. But I, so many people, and I include myself in this, absolutely that desire for love, acceptance, the feeling of being enough, that's one of the, the, if you really boil down limiting beliefs and the primary psychological motivators, that has to be one of, if not the most prominent or predominant. And people may achieve that end in, in vastly different ways, but that, that desire of wanting to be accepted from an evolutionary standpoint is even baked into us in many ways. Right. You know, and it's a thing that any listener right now, if you want to try to figure out why you're not walking the talk, Right. You know, let's say you want to start a company, but for some reason you instead are spending all your time 
posting on Instagram. I don't know. This is a hypothetical. Okay, great. Instead of judging yourself and being harsh on yourself and beating yourself up, why don't you pull back the layers? And good question to ask yourself is, okay, I say I want one thing, but I'm doing something else. And the, let's say that something else is posting on Instagram. Ask yourself, when I post on Instagram and I see those likes, what are the likes saying to me? And that answer is probably a clue to what your subconscious desire is on this quest. And, you know, the key that I've been learning is, you know, it's hard to practice, easy to say, which is instead of judging yourself, just look at yourself with clear eyes and invite those parts of yourself that you've been hiding in the shadows to step forward. Because it's when you sit your insecurities down at the dinner table, when you sit your fears down, that you can befriend them. And only then can you, as a whole person, walk forward in a single direction. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Such a powerful phrase, very Jungian of you. But this is such an important point and extrapolating that question beyond just the food, for example, anytime that there's a disconnect between what you want and what you're actually doing, figuring out why is this other activity meeting your needs or serving you in some way? Right. Because it is. You it has to be. You probably aren't doing things that you don't want to do. Now, look, people might say, well, that makes no sense. I know alcohol is bad for me. Why do I keep drinking every night? Because it's giving you something that you subconsciously want, whether you know it or not. And I don't say that in a judgmental way at all. Sometimes alcohol gives people exactly what they want, disassociating from the reality Actually, the list stops right there. The list stops right there. You know, sometimes, you know, maybe you can make some stuff, you know, you know, I'll have a couple glasses of wine at night because it feels good and it's a social lubricant for me. And yeah, but there's something, if you have any destructive habits in your life that you can't understand why you keep doing it, there is actually a reason that your subconscious likes, which is why you're doing it. You know, the human brain does what it, what feels good to it, even if consciously that thing is causing chaos in your life. 
one of the reasons why on the show I talk so much about the subconscious, about limiting beliefs, etc., is because when the conscious and the subconscious conflict, the subconscious always wins. <laughs> yeah, that's every good story. Interesting. I never thought about it from the narrative standpoint. You know, every good, well, you know, a narrative is just storytelling is the way human beings understand our life and our world. So it works both ways. If you want to be a good storyteller, you should understand how humanity works and the human psyche works. If you want to understand how the human psyche works, it's also very helpful to understand good storytelling because they're just mirrors of each other. You know, every great movie is a great movie because it actually speaks deeply to the human experience. If it didn't resonate, people would say, that was a psycho two hours that meant nothing to me, right? The re even, you know, the world's craziest sci-fi movies, you know, it resonates because we're human beings and something about it felt right. And, you know, the best characters are the complex characters where they say, you know, I have no heart, I am ruthless. And if you cross me, you know, I'll cut off your head. And then in the movie, someone they love crosses them and they reach for the gun, their hand shakes, and they walk away. You know, their conscious desire is that they're this tough person, no mercy, and their subconscious desire is they want family and loyalty and belonging. So it's, you know, Aristotle in his book Poetics says that what a character says is their, you know, what, what, how does he put it? He puts it in a perfect way. He says, and I highly recommend anyone who's into storytelling to read Aristotle's Poetics. Aaron Sorkin recommends it as his, you know, his Bible, his favorite book. And what Aristotle says is that what a character says is their personality. What a character, again, I'm paraphrasing here, what a character does is who they are. You know, what a character says is, you know, their personality of how they want to be seen by the world. But what they do in moments of pressure is who they are. You're obviously a fantastic storyteller. And the book, the stories from that are incredible. Even in this conversation, I get that sense from you. Where did you and how did you learn how to tell compelling stories? Hmm. Well, there are two questions. You know, where did it come from originally and where did I learn how to hone it are two different sources. Tell me both. Well, you know, the first question, you know, where did it come from? I I was actually meeting with a rabbi who I really admire. She's this wonderful writer. Her name is Naomi Levy. She wrote this book called Einstein and the Rabbi. And she was telling me this philosophy that, you know, talent, you don't own it when you're born. You don't own your talents. You don't own your skills. You know, this is a spiritual philosophy. You know, the idea is that they are like this flickering flame inside of you. You know, anyone who's been around a child, you know, for long enough, you see like, oh, that, I was actually at a coffee shop this morning. I just saw this kid who's like, you know, three years old in the coffee shop. And he just had this spark in his eyes and was just performing for anyone who would look at him making funny faces, being silly, you know, climbing on the railings. And I'm like, oh, he's either going to be the world's, you know, best performer or salesperson. He just has it in his eyes. But what this rabbi's theory is, is that, you know, you don't own that. That's, you know, the spirit is inside of you. It's only through practice 
and dedication and hard work do you transfer that ownership to yourself? Because, you know, we've all seen people in their 20s or 30s or 40s who never, you know, let that fire grow. They sort of neglected it for so long that sort of just left them. And, you know, now if I, you know, answering your question of where it came from, you know, when I was a little kid, when I was, I think, two years old or three years old, I physically couldn't, my mom was very worried about me because I couldn't put words together into a sentence. You know, I could say a couple words here and there, but I couldn't form sentences as a kid. And, you know, my mother and grandmother used to cry at night, you know, very worried about me. And one time my family went to Disneyland and, you know, I'm you know, three years old or something like that. Again, I don't remember the story. This is my mom's story that she tells me. But I watched this play by, you know, the Goofy was in this play at Disneyland, you know, one of those shows they have. And I loved it so much. When I came back home to my grandmother, I wanted to tell her everything about the show, about this play, this goofy play, but I didn't know how to put words together. So according to my mother, I spent the next 30 minutes acting out every scene of this play for my grandmother, you know, being all the characters and acting it all out. And, you know, that's where that rabbi's, you know, philosophy of, you know, the fire is in in you. But again, if I just stopped there, I wouldn't be a writer. I actually didn't become a real writer or storyteller, in my opinion, until the journey of the third door where I had to learn how to write narrative. And while I did have some storytelling instincts, and I, do you know what? That's actually a really good way to put it. You might have some instincts. That's a tangible word to use. You might be born with certain instincts. You know, Maya Angelou, when I interviewed her for The Third Door, says, you know, some people might be born with a certain ear for notes, or they might be born with a certain eye for, you know, lighting or what have you, or a certain brain for numbers. But that's about it. At the end of the day, it's how much you hone it. And I met a mentor by the name of Cal Fussman which I know you know, and Cal really taught me how to write. And for three, almost four years, we would sit together for two to three hours every night for about three days a week. And I would come show him my most recent draft and he would tear it apart and tell me to do it again. Very much like a Mr. Miyagi kind of relationship, you know, wax on, wax off. And look, Cal is a good enough writer. He could have told me exactly what to do. You know, just do this, do this, do the, you know, he's a master storyteller, master writer, but I'm very lucky in hindsight that he had the patience and the heart to show me how to hone that skill. And since then, it's, you know, the skill that I, one of them that I cherish the most in my life. What are some of the biggest lessons that you learned from Cal? Uh, God bless you for asking that question. Because as soon as I stop talking, I'm like, I really want to pay homage to Cal right there. Because, okay, now look, we can go, I, at some point in my life, I owe it to the world to do like a something of what Cal Fussman taught me. Because it's not fair that I'm the only recipient of, of, his, of his good, gracious gift of his teachings. Because look, he's not a professor. He's a practitioner. He's a best-selling author, writer, speaker, podcaster. 
he's out there in the world. He's not sitting down, you know, teaching classes. There are, do you want the big ideas or do you want the nitty gritty little stuff? Cause you know, there's years of teachings in there. Let's start with the big stuff and then maybe share one or two nitty gritty tactics. Okay. Big stuff, big stuff. Okay. I'll tell you two big stuff that made no sense to me when he first tried to teach me them and it took me years to understand. So I have no idea if this will land with people who hear it or not, but I'll say it anyways. Two big stuff. The first big thing, again, and it's so Cal speaks in code. Like I used to show him a chapter, a draft of a chapter. And you have to understand, I, you know, the Bill Gates chapter in the book, I edited 134 times before my publisher even saw it. So there were a lot of edits. And sometimes I'll show Cal a draft and he would say, ah, this draft is underwater. Bring it to the surface. And then he'd send me home. So that was what my you know, mentorship with Cal was like. But you know, one thing that he would try to teach me is something called grip, or that's Cal's word, having a grip. And good writing has a grip. And I'll give you an example. Here, I'll literally, I have the book right in front of me. Here's, I'll open to a random chapter. Okay, here's a chapter called The Imposter, which is about my journey to meet with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, a chapter that, a way I used to try to write you know, when I was just starting out would be say something like it was a beautiful sun shining day when I got an email, you know, something like that, trying to, you know, make it a nice story and starting it like that. Cal said that that is the most, and I'm summarizing, you know, years of his teaching, he would say that would be the most immature and timid way to write. And the reader knows and can smell your insecurity. And will have no respect. Now, he doesn't use these kinds of words, but that was my takeaway of what he was saying. And what Kyle's saying is that you want to grip the words, grip the chapter, you know, literally grab it by the lapel, sit it down, point a finger in its face and say, listen up. That's what having a grip is. And, you know, here's the start of the imposter chapter. The founder of TED had told me, I live my life by two mantras. One, if you don't ask, you don't get. And two, most things don't work out. And now I had just made my most far-fetched ask yet, and it was working out better than I could have imagined. The way that chapter starts is essentially saying, listen up, this is important, and you're going to want to know where this goes. Now, that took me years to try to understand, but you know that's one thing Cal taught me. Another thing that Cal taught me is... If there is no conflict in the story you just wrote, you did not write a story. You just recounted what happened. And again, these are my summaries of Cal's lessons. He didn't use these words exactly, but that's my takeaway, which is, you know, I would show Cal a chapter in my book where I said everything that happened, you know, I wrote the best of my memory, you know, what happened in that interview or in that adventure. And Cal said, there's no conflict here. And what Cal would help me do is search through my memory and also peel back the layers and say, ah, this was the conflict. This was the conflict. And many times, the conflict is not external, it's internal. Like if, Matt, if you remember the you know, interview with Bill Gates, it was a perfectly cordial, beautiful interview, me sitting with Bill Gates for an hour and asking him questions. There is no conflict in that chapter. And that's why it took 134 edits for me and Cal to come to the realization there was a lot of conflict, but it was inside of my own head. 
And that's what creates that narrative drive. Without conflict, there is no narrative drive. So I'd say those are two big overarching lessons I've learned from Cal Fussman, and I owe it all to him. There's so many different things I want to touch on. One, you shared some really good knowledge there. The two pieces of advice from the founder of TED, one, ask not, have not. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. And the second is most things don't work out. We touched on that and went deeper on that in our original interview. So for people who want to explore, those are two really important concepts and they work really well together. And they can honestly create magic in your life if you pursue them and implement them. But staying on this thread of storytelling, I think it's really important to understand the skill and the art of storytelling. And to me, that's something that if you imbue your communication with a powerful story, it's a hundred or a thousand times more impactful than just reciting the facts. And as somebody who's a very rational, logical, cold, calculating thinker, it's something I personally struggle with in trying to communicate information to people. And so it's such a fascinating topic for me and one that I think really improves anyone's communication skills to master even the fundamentals or some of the basics about storytelling. Yeah. It's surprising. I do a lot of keynote speaking for different corporations and, you know, the obvious reason they bring me in is, you know, the main topics I talk about is really, you know, how do you find that exponential growth, exponential success through the third door? But what's been interesting just in this past year is I've been getting a lot more requests to do storytelling keynotes and not just with marketing executives, but with sales teams, because so much of the sales process is how can you connect with that customer, connect to that account? And the way you connect with a human being is through a story. And storytelling for business purposes and business growth is grossly overlooked and can be that competitive advantage that most companies are looking for. I want one more tidbit from the storytelling thread. Tell me a tactic or a nitty-gritty detail or a lesson you learned about storytelling that has really been impactful for you and your work? Well, I'll just make you know some simple stuff, which is do not ever use an adverb. These are like little small things from Cal. Do not use adverbs. Do not use adverbs ever. Adjectives, don't use them that much either. It's much better to use a more specific verb or a more vivid description. So for example, he had a charming smile. You know, charming is an adjective. I would write something like that. And then Cal would say, you know, that is not how it's done. And he would teach me different ways to write. He would say, here's an example. His smile lifted his eyebrows or, you know, something along those lines where you can actually see what that smile looked like. That's a warm, open smile. If a smile is lifting the eyebrows, that's warm and open. So instead of using an adjective, using a verb in a description. So he smiled that lifted his eyebrows. So that's action. So you really want to focus on nouns and action. When it comes to punctuation, you want to use as simple punctuation as possible. When I wrote, I really loved, you know, dashes, M dashes. You know, some people use a lot of parentheses or a lot of semicolons or whatever. A lot of people love to use ellipses. You know, there's a thing. Clear writing uses commas, periods, and question marks. 
everything else, an exclamation point, a ellipses, a dash, a parentheses, those are, you know, let's make a sports analogy. Let's say you're playing basketball. The comma, the question mark, and the period is your dribble, your bounce pass, your free throw, your jump shot, right? Everything else, your ellipses, your dash, your exclamation point is your behind-the-back pass. It's your alley-oop. It's your half-court shot. If you do it once a game, which is pretty much saying, you know, like once a chapter, you have style. You know, that is a fun game to watch. If you are doing it at every play, which is pretty much saying in every paragraph, you are the most obnoxious amateur, you know, in the NBA. And what's hard when you're writing is you don't normally just write a book in one sitting. You write, you know, a few paragraphs here, a few paragraphs there. So you might put in, you know, an exclamation mark every time you sit down to write, maybe one a day. But when you pull back, oh, God, now there's three exclamation marks in this chapter. There's five or ten dashes on this one page. So you have that's where editing comes in and you want to tone it down. So that's a trick on punctuation. And, you know, a final trick. And again, all of these are, you know, tipping my hat to Cal Fussman. Cal says that every sentence is like a restaurant. And the same is true of every paragraph being like a restaurant, every chapter is like a restaurant, and every book is a restaurant. But we'll focus on the sentence. The first word is the mater D, welcoming you in. Every phrase, every you know part of that sentence separated by commas is a different course in the meal. And then the final word of that sentence is the dessert. So I'll give you an example. Let's say here, I'm literally going to just open the book to, you know, sitting in front of me, I'll open to a random page here. This is from the chapter. It's all gray. Here's a random sentence. It doesn't even matter the context. Headlines and movies make things seem black and white. That sentence has no comma, no dash. You know, it's a straight, clear sentence. That sentence is like having you know, some carrots and hummus. You know, you dip the, you know, exactly what you're getting. You're going straight through. There's no interruption. The waiter isn't bothering you. You know, you get your food, you eat it, and you go. It is a clean experience. Now, if there's a sentence sometimes, but you want to have variety because you don't want to eat, you know, a salad every day or carrots and hummus every day. Sometimes you want a six-course meal. Sometimes it's good to have a mater D that sort of is a little rude. Starting a sentence with however, comma, Boom, the mater D just told you, excuse me, you don't have a reservation. <laughs> you know? Ending a sentence with the word that's the main part of the main message. Let's say it's, do you love me? The heart of that sentence is me. Do you love me? Now, if you wrote that sentence, is it me you love? The main part of that sentence, the dessert, is love. And this is especially important with writing because writing, you're visually reading the words. So the final word you read is the final word you read. And it affects the experience a lot, even more so than oral storytelling. Because oral storytelling, you can rely on inflection points. Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, but with writing, it's visual. And the last thing the person sees is the last thing they say. 
Fascinating. I was curious how you were going to turn that sentence around, and it does make a difference. It's really interesting. These are some some fascinating tidbits about how to be a better storyteller, which are such important communication skills. I want to circle back to the earlier part of the conversation. We were talking about this idea of people being paralyzed by fear of using the analogy that you use in the book, not wanting to step out of line at the nightclub and run into the alleyway and try to pry open the third door. The interesting thing that I've found beyond even the initial journey of stepping into discomfort and opening up opportunities and doing things that you're afraid of is that it's a challenge that never stops. And even once you're inside the nightclub, there's infinite opportunities that manifest themselves that you can't even conceive of if you're still stuck in line and trying to figure out how to get in. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. What have you seen and what have you learned about how people can get past the internal factors that are holding them back, the fears that are holding them back from taking action on their dreams? You know, there's a lot of things that are very helpful when I was starting out, you know, I came from an immigrant family. So therapy is in the same category of taboo as cocaine. So, <laughs> so I wasn't ready to go there, but journaling was very safe. I could be in my dorm room and just journal every night. And journaling was my way of trying to get some awareness of what I cared about, what I was passionate about, what I didn't like, what was sucking my soul. Talking to friends who are insightful is very helpful. But therapy has been a game changer for me. I go to therapy once a week now for six years. That's been really helpful. But, you know, what I'll say, you know, if you want to specifically focus on why most people, you know, don't leave that line, if I had to sum it up, there's this, you know, famous anecdote of, you know, if I were to tell you, you know, specifically if I looked you in the eyes and I said there is a burning building across the street right now. It's on fire, but there is a $5 bill on the third floor and first person who finds it gets it. Will you run across the street into that building? No, you know, no no one in the right mind would do that. But if I looked you in the eyes, you know, I told you same building, same amount of flames on the third floor is the person you love most in this world. You wouldn't even have time to ask me where on the third floor that person is because you would already be running across the street. And what that anecdote demonstrates about the human mind is that we tell ourselves the reason we're not going into that building is because of the size of the flames in the first example. Oh, why would I? Why? Look at the flames. They're so dead. No, that's what we tell ourselves. But the reality is we actually don't care enough about what's on the other side of the flames. And this is the truth of the human experience. You know, whether you like it or not, take it or leave it, I, you know, I didn't make the rules, but this is just how human beings act. And the reality is, and, you know, again, this isn't a novel concept. You know, if you read Man's Search for Meaning, that's, you know, one of the big takeaways there. You know, there's a very famous quote that says, anyone with a big enough why will find a how. And when it comes to, you know, career success, 
most people who call it quits is because they didn't care enough about the thing on the other side. Enough, enough. They probably cared about it, but look, there's all these stories of, you know, a financial company where the second, you know, the market dips, you know, all of the, you know, partners of the company jump ship to a different, you know, fund or something like that. Yeah, because they were in that fund for, you know, quick buck. And then you hear these other stories of these startups where, you know, they are, you know, like Tom's Shoes, you know, Blake Mykoski, you know, had moments where he almost couldn't make payroll and the company almost went under. And, you know, you read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, you know, the company almost goes under so many times. And these people had a reason larger than themselves that was the reason to go through the flames. Shoe Dog is such a great business biography exactly for that reason. It's it's staggering how many times the entire company was on the line and almost didn't make it. And when you look at Nike today, you, you see what a tremendous success it is. And you don't... And it seems so obvious, right? Yep, exactly. Like, oh, how can Nike not be famous? Michael Jordan, the swoosh. Yeah. You don't see all the struggle and the challenges behind it. So for, for someone who's been listening to this conversation who wants to take action in some way to concretely implement something that we've talked about today, what would be a piece of homework or an action item that you would give them to start taking action today? Let's say you're in the place where, let's take it down to the you know lowest common denominator of, let's say you don't even know what your passion or your path is, but you know you want to get going. And this can be any stage in life. You can be 16 years old, you can be 60 years old. And you want to find out you know, what your subconscious desires are. You want to find out what your inner whisper is telling you. And for some reason, if you can't find it, which is most people, myself included, when I was starting out, and even times like this, you know, whenever you're starting a new chapter in life, it's something that I call the 30-day challenge. It's called the 30-day challenge. And this is what I tell people. Go out and get a brand new notebook, go to a pharmacy, a CVS, you know, get a $1 notebook. Because first of all, the brain knows the difference between writing on a piece of scrap paper and writing on a brand new notebook. So go get that new notebook and write on the cover 30-day challenge. You know, get a Sharpie, write on the cover 30-day challenge. And this is what you're going to do. For 30 minutes every day, and this is 30 consecutive days, not 30 days spread out over nine months, 30 consecutive days at the same time, whether that's in the morning, at night, find a time that you can commit. You're going to journal on three questions. And these are the three questions. Ready? Number one, what filled me with enthusiasm today? What filled me with enthusiasm today? Now, the question is not what made me happy, what made me excited. Now, the question is what filled me with enthusiasm today? That's the first question. The second question is, what drained me of energy today? What drained me of energy today? The third question, final question, is what did I learn about myself today? What did I learn about myself today? And this is the key. If you start doing this, after the first couple of days, you're going to feel very good about yourself. You're going to be fired up. You're learning about yourself. You feel accomplished. You'll keep going. And then about day 12 and 13 and 14, yeah, you're going to not really remember why you were doing this in the first place. It's going to feel repetitive. You're not going to feel like you're getting much out of it. 
by day 19, you're going to start thinking, I'm an, you know, Alex is an idiot. This is, doesn't work. But if you keep going and you keep doing it by day 28, 29, and 30, you start seeing this, you know, dim but and flickering neon sign pointing you on the direction of your path. And that's all you need. And Alex, where can listeners find you and the book and all of your work online? I appreciate you asking. The book is available wherever people like to buy books. So whether that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or if you like audiobooks, I read the audiobook myself, so it's on Audible and iTunes. And if you end up getting the book from this episode, definitely let me know on social media. My Instagram is at Alex Benayan, and let me know so I can say thank you. And one of the reasons that we had Alex back on the show to begin with is because he had such a great response from the listeners on the first interview. So if you enjoyed this conversation, definitely reach out and say hi to Alex. It will make me very happy. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show, for digging into all of this wisdom, some fascinating insights about overcoming what's holding us back and how to be a better storyteller and how to put ourselves on the path towards our dreams. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure being back and I hope we can do it again. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs>